If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Tonight on the readout. This is what I call the bewitched defense um, that he somehow can uh, sort of magically transform uh, documents into unclassified documents. And if that's the case, well, then anybody could just magically wave a wand and poof, reclassify them then. I mean, I, this, this whole thing is just so insane to hear a former president of our country say this out loud. Trump's defense of the indefensible is getting more absurd by the day. And now his hand-picked judge have received, received an embarrassing rebuke from a panel of appeals court judges. Also tonight, New York's attorney general exposes Trump's most sensitive insecurity. The fact that he's not nearly as rich as he claims to be, something my guest Tim O'Brien forced Trump to admit in court a decade ago. And the performative sadism of Ron DeSantis, as the Daily Beast describes it, Few other politicians seem to get as much glee out of seeing other people get hurt. We begin tonight with a simple rule of legal professionals. In most cases, whenever possible, keep your clients off of TV and avoid letting them do interviews, which usually do more harm than good. Unfortunately for Donald Trump's lawyers, their needy, attention-craving client could only hold out for so long. And so last night on one of his favorite shows in an interview with his friend, Sean Hannity, he seemed to make a losing argument even worse. In his latest throw spaghetti at the wall defense, or is it throw ketchup at the wall? Trump made this outrageous claim about his magical powers to declassify documents. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. And There doesn't have to be a process. There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be. You're the president. You make that decision. So when you send it, it's declassified. We, I declassified everything. Of course, moments earlier, Trump again implied that the FBI may have actually planted those very documents that he supposedly declassified. Unfortunately for Trump, we are not all living in an episode of Bewitched, and he cannot just wiggle his nose and expect classified material to miraculously become unclassified. And even if he could, that would also mean that the material he knowingly declassified included what has been reported as info about a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities. And beyond all of that absurdity, Trump appeared to indicate that he intentionally sent those documents to Mar-a-Lago and perhaps to other places that we don't yet know about. So much for it all just being one big accident. Now, none of this actually helps Trump's legal team, which is also dealing with the news last night of a much-needed course correction from our judicial branch. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals cleaned up the mess created by the Trump-appointed district judge who ruled that Trump apparently had a potential right to the classified documents that he stole from the White House when he left office. In a total repudiation of Judge Eileen Cannon's ruling, a three-judge panel, two of whom were appointed by Trump, sided with the Department of Justice. 
allowing it to resume using the more than 100 documents in its criminal investigation and removing them from the special master's review. Counter to what Judge Cannon said in her ruling, the Court of Appeals wrote, for our part, we cannot discern why plaintiff would have an individual interest in or need for any of the 100 documents with classification markings. And to Trump's repeated claims that that he just declassified everything magically, like I Dream of Jeannie, the Court of Appeals writes that that argument is irrelevant. Quote, in any event, at least for these purposes, the declassification argument is a red herring because declassifying an official document would not change its content or render it personal. As a result of the decision by the appeals court, Judge Cannon has already revised her initial order for the special master, removing any references to the classified material that was seized from Mar-a-Lago. Joining me now is Javed Ali, former senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council and associate professor at the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Thank you both for being here, Barbara. I'm going to start with you. It feels like order has been restored and the judiciary's dignity has been restored. You know, I sat and read this 11th Circuit um, Court ruling, and it read to me like, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, and you're an idiot, and what? Like, I mean, it read to me like a rebuke. How did you read it? Absolutely. It was such a good day for the rule of law. And I know sometimes people are very cynical about the idea that there are Trump-appointed judges on this panel, but they followed the law. They described it, and they really shot down the opinion written by Judge Cannon in the district court. And as you said to me, the most important line in the whole thing is this idea of declassification is just a red herring. It doesn't matter that Donald Trump, if he did declassify these documents, because it doesn't change the content and it does not transform them into personal records. And so, you know, sometimes when something is so far afield, it's difficult to know even where to begin. But they very methodically walk through all of the mistakes made in Judge Cannon's order and restore order and restore some faith in the rule of law. Well, I mean, and the thing is, is I feel like they're ruling because you, yourself, uh, other lawyers that we've had on the show, all were saying the same thing. No one disagreed except for one guest that we had on who seemed like he kind of wanted to be the special master in a way, you know, that, that the, he doesn't own these documents, that you can't say that you have some sort of possessory interest in something that isn't yours. That just seemed like you know, not even law school 101. And and so when you look at what this 11th Circuit did, how do you then think about this judge? Because I, th- there's no grounding in what she did. Is what she did somehow corrupt in your view? I, I don't know. I don't want to call her corrupt. I'd like to assume good faith when the judge makes a decision. But it was so profoundly wrong. You know, the idea that a special master may be uh, appropriate to review attorney-client privilege in the case of a non-lawyer would have been a stretch. But, you know, in this case, fine. It's harmless enough. Um, that she extended it to executive privilege seemed wrong when it's the very executive branch itself that wants these yep. documents. But the part that was entirely over the top was d- dismissing the government's assertion that these documents were classified, that they were government records, that they belong to the United States. And even under the Presidential Records Act, it is the U.S. government that owns them. 
even if the president is permitted to access them upon request. And so everything about it was uh, wrong to varying degrees. And so uh, I don't know if she was just working very hard to, uh, in a case of significant public opinion, uh, bend over backwards to show every courtesy to a president. She did say that she considered his status as a former president to be significant. But of course, in this country, we're supposed to consider every litigant to be equal before the law. Exactly. Exactly. Javed Ali, let me bring you in here. Let me play something else that Donald Trump said. I mean, everything he said in this interview with John Hannity seemed really ill-advised. I'll just use that term. Here he is attacking uh, the National Archives, which is like the library. Go ahead. And we were having a lot of problems with NARA. You know, NARA uh, is a radical left group of people running that thing. And when you send documents over there, I would say there's a very good chance that a lot of those documents will never be seen again. They'll never be seen again by you, man. They're in the National Archives. This is what Andrew Weissman said. Trump's after-the-fact baseless denigrating NARA as a left-wing political organization is actually just an admission that he intentionally did not return the stolen docs to NARA. It's not a legal defense at all. What do you make of the fact that he openly admitted on TV that, yeah, I took the documents, you know, because you can't trust them. They're the liberal NARA. Uh, Joy, great to be with you and great to be with my colleague, Barb, uh, from the University of Michigan. Um, to get to, to these questions, I, I think it's just another example of President Trump sort of reaching uh, in different moments of time for different strategies that may sort of try to uh, throw the, the trail off his potential culpability here. And so attacking NARA, suggesting that, you know, these other uh, kind of schemes are in place, it just seems to be part of the playbook, uh, and going back to some of the earlier points that you raised in the beginning of the clip about uh, the classification process, the president, even though uh, he has or they have broad powers as under Article 2 as commander-in-chief, cannot magically declassify anything on a whim. It has to go through a formal process. And as a former intelligence officer, I know it's very deliberate. It's very methodical. Uh, the intelligence community has to take a step back and, and look at the potential risk to intelligence sources, methods, and any mitigation plan to restore loss collection once you declassify something. So none of that happened in this case. And again, this this claim that he just thought about declassifying something and it thereby made these super sensitive documents automatically declassified just doesn't hold anymore. Well, I think, therefore, it's declassified. I mean, if that were the case, you know, any president's thoughts could become incredibly dangerous. As you said, these things are classified for a reason. They're protecting national security. Some countries' nuclear secrets apparently are in these documents. So just talk about how the intelligence community now can move forward. I mean, Donald Trump is accusing the FBI of planting the documents in his house. First, he said he took them. Then he said, well, no, they were planted by the FBI. Judge Deary has said, okay, prove it. He gave him a deadline. He's like, bring me back evidence that somebody planted something there that wasn't already there. You know, and, and so every one of his claims is being knocked down. But just talk about the importance for the investigation and for the national security of this country that now the government can reaccess these documents. Well, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, according to media reporting, is conducting uh, a damage assessment based on the, the classified documents that were recovered at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and those are only the ones that we know of. We don't know what's missing. But uh, the ones that were recovered, really digging into those and seeing how uh, in, how sensitive the sources and methods revealed in these different documents. And I have to assume these were intelligence assessments, not individual reports of a particular type of intelligence, but even collectively, there's a lot of intelligence uh, material to sift through. And now it's a question of, again, who had access to what 
uh, has potentially any of those or any of those assessments, could they have uh, now been the possession of somebody else? Or did someone remember details and shared it with someone who didn't have a, a security clearance? And, you know, where it goes from there could be a game of, of telephone. So this is going to take a while for just even on the intelligence side, forget about the law enforcement criminal side that Barbara's more familiar with to figure out the damage that potentially could have been done. And again, to if collection has been lost on certain topics, how do we get that back? And that sometimes you may not get collection back once you lose it and something becomes declassified. So this is going to be a, a, an ongoing challenge for the intelligence community. Well, let me ask you both. I'm going to start with you, Javetta Lee, and then I'll give Barbara McQuaid the last word on this. It, given the fact that Donald Trump asserted, essentially, these are mine and I want them, and also that his lawyers, they wanted to see them again, and, and they seem to have this sort of, you know, sort of possessiveness toward them, would that prompt you as an investigator and a national security pro- uh, professional to want to, I don't know, search his other properties to see if he's got more? Well, I think that's potentially in play here because even in the Mar-a-Lago case, uh, if folks remember, uh, beyond what was recovered, there were apparently other blank folders labeled classified, whether they had cover sheets on them, it's not clear to me, but there may have been additional classified informations and again, probably intelligence assessments in those folders and where are those and who had access to them and, and what did they contain? And these are all questions we don't know on the missing, uh, potentially missing material. Absolutely. And, and Barbara, given the fact that you now have sort of two kind of, you know, sort of chunks of types of judges, you had one judge who was very solicitous, I'll just say that, was just solicitous of Donald Trump's claims that he could theoretically go back to again if, let's say, Bedminster was searched, but that you also have the 11th Circuit saying, no, 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 these belong to the government and they are the ones who have the interest in them. What do you think would be the hurdles that theoretically, if the DOJ were to say, you know what, now we do want to search other properties. Do you, could Trump play the same game again and go back to the same judge canon and do this dance again? Well, if they looked in Bedminster, you have you are uh, then under the jurisdiction of a judge in that district. So District of New Jersey, if we're talking about Bedminster to get in the door there, they would need to be able to establish DOJ would probable cause not only that a crime has been committed, which I think they have now established, but also probable cause to believe that the documents would be stored at that location. And so I can imagine that part of the damage assessment and the criminal investigation is to investigate what happened to these documents in the missing folders and to interview people who work at Bedminster to find out if they've seen any evidence of this. Because if they can get a witness to say, oh, yeah, I saw some boxes come in the door, that could be enough probable cause to then get a search warrant for that location. Now, if Trump wanted to challenge that, he would have to do it in New Jersey and begin right. his judge shopping all over again. Or or if you if they want to talk about Trump Tower, where, you know, in the grill, there's these documents. It's like, York, what is yeah. this? So, yeah, it would be it would be wherever, whatever jurisdiction. So can and can't control it all. Interesting. Um, thank you both very much. Javed Ali, Barbara McQuaid. Appreciate you both. Up next on The Readout. In his business dealings, Trump has gotten away with lying and cheating for so long. He thinks it's his God-given right. But now it's all out on the table. And he's in big trouble. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. Remember that? When newly minted Press Secretary Sean Spicer presented that whopper the day after the former president's inauguration, you would be forgiven for thinking it it seemed ridiculous. Well, because it was. But only if you were not familiar with his then boss, since Donald Trump's entire existence has been one giant hyper-exaggeration, especially, especially when it comes to his supposed wealth. I've built something that's recognized even today in negative times as being immense and potentially extremely valuable. You'd put up $600 million for this? Absolutely, assuming I'm doing well. Do you have $600 million to I spare? much more than that. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich because I don't need anybody's money. It's nice. I don't need anybody's money. I don't care. I'm really rich. And then they had, oh, but he'll never put in his financials because maybe he's not as rich as people think. But then it turned out I was much richer. Now they don't know what, they're really screwed up. Much richer. I did too well. I made too much and I did too well. And that's the way it is. So I can't be bought. (laughs) Well, in the midst of all of that, in 2005, author Tim O'Brien wrote his book, Trump Nation. The Trump actually wasn't a billionaire, as he had claimed to be. And people he'd spoken to estimated Trump's net worth at between 150 and 250 million dollars. Still a lot of money, but not a billion. Habitual, fabulous Donald Trump then made the colossally dumb decision to sue O'Brien. Trump, of course, lost. But in the process, made O'Brien one of the few people to see Trump challenged on his lies under oath. More than 30 times, in fact, in a December 2007 deposition. Tim O'Brien joins me now. He is senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion and an MSNBC political analyst. We've talked about this so many times over the years, Tim. (laughs) I am so uh, glad to get a chance to talk to you again about it today. I mean, the thing about Donald Trump is he's always lied. And and being claiming to be a billionaire and fronting as a billionaire, it was like fundamental to his brand. It's why he got The Apprentice. Mark Burnett, they, they sold this complete BS and people bought it, including the media. Well, and the, and the idea also that he was self-made. Uh, yes. You know, Donald Trump is a guy who was born on third base and has spent his life telling people he hit a triple. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he, he would not have been able to enter the Manhattan real estate market without uh, his father's money joy. His father bailed him out repeatedly when he made numerous different mistakes by taking on debt, not running businesses properly, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, one of the interesting things in my book is the, the, the pages that discuss his net worth are only two to three pages of, of, of a much longer book. And that's what he zeroed in on. And I think the reason he zeroed in on it is because he is so wildly insecure about who he is and what he's done that he constantly needs to bloviate. And, it, and by the way, it's not just his wealth. He talks about his intellect. He talks about how attractive yeah. he is to women. He talks about his physicality. He talks about his money. There is nothing about his identity 
that he's not insecure about, but the, he sees money as a scorecard. And the yeah. reality is he was never the biggest real estate developer in Manhattan. He is not a self-made man. And at the time I was writing the book, he was telling me he was worth anywhere from $3 billion to $9 billion. Sometimes those valuations differed in the same day when I spent time with him. And, and I think the fact that he decided to sue me over it uh, is a reflection of, of how aware he is that his lies reside very close to the surface. And, and of course, the difference when I wrote the book was I was not a prosecutor. And, and now though that's, that same grade inflation that mm-hmm. he indulged in is, is the subject of a, of a, of an indictment. I mean, it's all coming apart. And the thing that's so ironic, and we've talked about this book in the past, if he had not run for president, he uh, probably would have continued to get away with it. I mean, Cy Vance, the former Manhattan DA, had no intention of ever touching him, clearly. He didn't, didn't do anything. He was there forever. He'd gotten away with this forever. The closest he ever got to a being to a billion was losing $900 million, like going in the <laughs> hole, almost a billion. That's the closest he ever got to it. Let me read a little bit from the 2007 deposition. Lawyer, uh, Mr. Trump, have you always been completely truthful in your public statements about your your net worth of properties. Trump, I try. Lawyer, have you ever not been truthful? Trump, my net worth fluctuates and it goes up and down with markets and with my attitudes and with feelings, even my own feelings. (laughs) I try. (laughs) His net worth is based on his feelings? Yeah, yeah. The translation, the translation of that is I make it up. Uh, You know, at another point in that same deposition, Joy, um, we were asking about how he figured out the value of of some of his various golf courses. And he acknowledged, he said that he didn't he didn't um, keep just standard profit and loss statements that would help him figure out how profitable the golf courses were. Um, Whether or not that was true, he said it in the deposition. And so my lawyer said, well, then how do you calculate the value of the golf courses? And he said, I use mental projections. (laughs) And, you know, Donald Trump's entire life is about mental projection. Yes. And the power uh, of positive thinking. And, and he passed it on to his sons. I mean, it was his own son, the second fails of the younger one, who told us, oh, no, no, we don't need loans. We get all our money from Russia. And then right. they're shocked that people are like, you get your money from Russia and want to investigate it. I mean, it, it, let's go through. Uh, let's go through. And by the way, that's Eric. That's Eric Trump Eric. who said that. And Eric is the same individual who took the fifth. Uh, I think over 500 times during yeah. his deposition with Letitia James's prosecutors. That's going to be tested in court now. Exactly. Here's another from the, the deposition. Have you ever lied in public statements about your properties? Uh, you always, when you're making a public statement, you want to put the most positive. You want to say it the most positive way possible. I'm no different from a politician running for office. You <laughs> want to put the best foot forward. But Tim, he said that his old 1980s era, 11,000 square foot uh, triplex uh, in Trump Tower was 30,000 square feet and worth like $300 million. That he isn't also, just lying. It's, it's, it's madness. Go ahead. Well, it's pathologic. You know, he also added uh, invisible floors to Trump Tower <laughs> to increase the height of the building. Um, he lied about what he was paid in speaking fees. He lied about the amount of money he got for condominiums when he sold them. He's lied about his grades. He's lied about his academic record. Yes. I think the issue for Tish James is convincing a jury that he so successfully duped his lenders that a crime was committed. That's a high hurdle. I think yeah. it's a civil case. And I think I think she's got a lot of wind at her back. But that, you know, that gap between exaggeration, bloviation and lying and yeah. committing a crime is is the test of this whole thing. It, it absolutely is. It's going to be fascinating to watch because, yes, if it becomes criminal, it's a higher burden of proof, too. So we shall see what happens. Tim O'Brien, always a pleasure. Thank you, my Thank friend. Thank you, Appreciate Joy. You. Cheers. All right. Good night. Uh, and 
next. The January 6th committee confirms the date of what may be, may be their final hearing and that they will be talking with Ginny Thomas about her own attempts to overturn the election. We'll be right back. everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. We had real hearings and 25, 30 million Americans watching because we told the truth about Donald Trump's assault on democratic institutions and the right to vote in America. And maybe you can't handle the truth, but that's the reality and nobody's laid a glove on any of the testimony that has come out during those hearings. Next week, that January 6th committee is set to hold its final hearing. Republicans, with the exception of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, have refused to engage in the investigation, choosing instead to further the big lie. Well, yesterday, one of those conservative activists and election deniers, Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, agreed to meet with the committee to discuss her role in promoting the overturning of the 2020 election. Mrs. Thomas texted with Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about rejecting the results and emailed lawmakers in both Arizona and Wisconsin, urging them to overturn the results weeks after Joe Biden was elected president. While Thomas was scheduling her meeting with the committee, the House passed a bill that would prevent people like Ginny Thomas from launching another coup. The bill, introduced by California Democrat Zoe Lofgren and Wyoming Republican Liz Cheney, would reform the Electoral College Act or the Electoral Count Act by clarifying ambiguous language which Trump and his allies exploited. The bill makes it crystal clear that despite what Trump might say, the vice president does not have the power to reject the will of the people. The Senate is working on its own version. Now, tellingly, 203 Republicans, the majority of their House caucus, rejected the legislation. In so doing, they refused to put a stop to any future January 6th, a violent state on American democracy. Officer Eugene Goodman, an Army veteran seen here luring rioters away from the Senate chambers, likely saving lawmakers' lives in the process, testified on Wednesday at the trial of one of the men who led the mob that he faced down. What he told jurors and what Republicans want to ignore is that what happened on that day was purely medieval. And this afternoon, the Secret Service agent, who was the January 6th site agent for then-Vice President Mike Pence, testified at that same trial, and she was asked, by the government, if in her 13 years of service, had she ever, ever had protectees come this close to danger? And she said, no. 
Joining me now is David Clough, MSNBC political analyst and a former Obama White House senior advisor. And there's so much to talk to you about, David. Thank you for being here. But I want to start with Ginny Thomas, because it is unprecedented for us to even know the name of the spouse of a Supreme Court justice. I don't think I could name any of their spouses. But she's become quite famous, quite infamous for participating in encouraging a coup. This is what she did. Virginia Thomas, Jenny Thomas, urged White House chief of staff to pursue unrelenting efforts to overturn the election, according to text. She um, urged lawmakers to overturn the election losses in Wisconsin and in Arizona. She was involved. What do you expect to come of her conversations? What do you think might come of her conversations with the committee? Well, Joy, I think we— most of us anyway, wish that this was going to be televised and all of America can see it. But, you know, I think we uh, we should be careful about questioning the January 6th committee. They really delivered the goods. They've done a tremendous job. They got a lot of criticism in the beginning and they told an amazing story. So these are unprecedented times, except that we're reminded that, you know, we repeat history all the time. I'm actually watching uh, the new Ken Burns documentary, America and the Holocaust on PBS. And there was this line in the first episode where the narrator says, you know, most of the conservative politicians who enabled Hitler to rise to the leader of Germany, you know, didn't believe in everything he believed in and thought they could control. But they all believed that it was time for democracy to end. And whether it's Jimmy, Jenny Thomas, unfortunately, probably her husband, you see all those members of the House who didn't vote to protect the election from another coup uh, in 2024. That seems to be the central organizing principle of one of America's two political parties is they would just be fine. Some of them, the democracy dying, many of them see it as what they really want, in my view, is to be unaccountable to the law, to the courts, to the voters, to the press. Uh, and, And it's scary. So I hope what comes out of this hearing is the committee learns more uh, about her role, the messages. We know the messages she sent, text and email. I'm sure there's a lot more. And that'll give us a bigger picture because this was all a conspiracy. This wasn't independent actors acting on their own. Uh, and they were organized in, and, and their cheerleader was sitting behind the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. Right. And the thing is, what brings it all together and what is really frightening, and I agree with you, is that you had this because they didn't like the fact that their candidate didn't win this one election. They don't question their own elections in that same race, right, if they're in the House. (laughs) But they didn't like the results of that. But then in the states, what you're seeing the same party doing is saying, we want to strip women of their uh, rights over their own bodies, but then we want to make it so hard to vote that you can't punish us for it. So you're right. They want to be able to be unaccountable and to be in permanent power. And to stay in power and do to women, people of color, immigrants, whatever they want with no accountability. And it scares me that so many Americans are okay with that. Well, Joy, I think because a lot of Americans think it's episodic. Well, they were just having to defend Trump, but when he's off the stage, if he ever gets off the stage, um, you know, they'll be more sensible or they really won't go through with it. Uh, it's scary to stare it in the face and understand how close we are to losing our democracy. But you only have to look around the country at who Republicans have nominated. Yes, in many governor's races and many Senate races. But how about secretary of state's races? The the people who run elections in major battleground states, the Republican nominees are saying they think the last election was invalid uh, so that they can position themselves to ensure that their candidate never loses. So your point about permanent power is the important one. This isn't episodic. This isn't uh, an interregnum uh, in the early 2020s of American history. This is a desire. It's organized, it's planned, it's thought out, and I think it's going to be persistent uh, to make sure that they never lose elections again that they care about. So they have to be defeated at the ballot box and soundly. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think about this Electoral Count Act um, reform, you know, only nine Republicans felt comfortable voting for it in the House. And they're all lame ducks. And then in the Senate, you have, I think, 10 of them that are now on board, but they're also on the lame duck side of the, of the you know. And here's the other thing. It's not even clear that the Senate version of this bill would fix it because it would, Mark Elias has raised concerns that it would codify the idea that the governor would be the final arbiter of whose state slates of electors get uh, counted in by the, by the House. Well, what if the governor is Carrie Lake? I mean, what, <laughs> what if it's Doug Mastriano? I mean, that doesn't well, help. We, we, <laughs> right. We know the answer. Well, no one knows uh, election law better than Mark Elias, uh, and, and nobody can interpret uh, the what what could happen with these laws? So I think the intention in the Senate is 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 positive. So we should applaud those ten Republican senators. We should applaud the nine Republican House members, no matter how small the numbers. But that tells you that that almost every House Republican and at least eighty percent or close to that of Senate Republicans, and I would argue most governors around the country, most uh, you know elected officials, they do not want to protect the election from a wannabe dictator and autocrat. So those numbers are so startling. Um, and that's why hopefully the House and Senate can reconcile both. So if something gets passed, and to your point, most importantly, something that will protect our country. Um, because listen, there's no question, we don't know what 2024 holds, but most of our presidential elections in the last couple of generations are close. We should assume the next one's going to be close. Uh, anything that's not a historical landslide blowout uh, is ripe for malfeasance. Uh, and that's why something being passed out of Congress is important, but it's actually got to fix the problem. I mean, the, the, the thing is, if there was just a Ginny Thomas, that would be one thing. But it's like 90 percent of them are Ginny Thomas. I mean, you know, the conspiracy theories, the lack of belief in elections and the fact that we are now actually having to talk about fascism in America. You're watching that PBS special. But we're dealing with fascism, open fascism in some cases right now in 2022. It scares me a lot. And how hopeful are you that we can beat this back? Well, I'm hopeful because I believe in people. I believe in young people. Uh, I believe in the promise of this country. But I think this is, you know, a 60-40 proposition, maybe if you're an optimist, um, because you look who they nominated, you know, up and down the ballot all across the country, they're election deniers. And again, it's not just they're saying we think Trump won because we have to say that. They're now saying, you know, going forward, <laughs> they're yeah. going to make it, of course, harder to vote, but they want to set up systems so, systems so they decide who wins. So we have to make sure uh, that we have a, as good election as we can in 22. Uh, that is the precursor for 24. I mean, yeah. so what I'd say, Joy, is uh, mid-November of 2024, uh, if we're still a democracy and we're a democracy on January 20th, 2025, I think we've made it through the worst. <laughs> but I think yeah. that's very much an open question. And that's a scary thing to say in America. I mean, you yeah. look at that Trump rally over the weekend uh, with the hands raised. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that is the scariest sight as we've seen in American history. And, and I'm telling you guys, you know, I, I'm telling you guys that David Pluff is one of the most sober, serious, non-hysterical people. In, and if he's saying this, take it very seriously. I'm serious. It, it, this is not Joy saying this. David Pluff would not be saying this if it were not 100 percent absolutely dead serious. Take it seriously. David Pluff, thank you very much. I do appreciate you. Uh, up next, scary stuff. We say scaring is caring over here. Speaking of 
fascistic forces, the politics of cruelty featuring the right wing's new favorite performative sadist, Governor Ronald Don DeSantis. But how his cruelty is colliding, but now his cruelty is colliding head on with America's sense of basic human decency, which still exists here. We'll be back after this. Migrants who were shipped like cargo from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in an inhumane stunt by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are now suing him, alleging they were victims of fraud for political purposes. The lawsuit alleges that the Venezuelan asylum seekers experienced cruelty akin to what they fled in their home country. Cruelty. It's a word we hear a lot these days about the Republican Party. And in the case of Ron DeSantis, the cruelty gets uglier by the day. New reporting by the Miami Herald shows that operatives linked to DeSantis approached asylum seekers in San Antonio, Texas, promising a flight to Delaware the next day at 5 a.m., where there would be work. But the next morning, there was no flight, leaving the migrants stranded. No reason was given. It's another scene in what David Lurie calls the performative sadism of Ron DeSantis, for whom cruelty and humiliation have been central to his governance and political rise, all for the purpose of owning the libs to prove that he's just as xenophobic, fascism-curious, and hateful as Donald Trump, maybe even more so. Cruel, sadistic, and possibly criminal. Descriptors that no longer hinder Republican leaders, but in fact elevate them. Because as the great Adam Serwer once wrote of Trump's America, the cruelty is the point. Joining me now is Adam Serwer, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point, Why Trump's America Endures, which is now out on paperback. Adam, it's really great to talk with you. And, you know, I remind my team often when we talk about Ron DeSantis is that he came from the Tea Party. Right. And, and what we remember about the Tea Party were the ugly rallies, the monkey dolls, the name calling, the hanging uh, Barack Obama in effigy but also flinging money down on a Parkinson's patient in the street and being like, I'll start a pot, calling him a communist because he was on the street, literally, physically, and spitting on black members of Congress as they walked into the Capitol to sign a health care bill, to give people health care. So I think when people, divor- people have divorced him from that movement, but that's where he came from. What do you make of his cruelty politics? Well, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to illustrate how throughout American history, uh, cruelty has helped draw a line between the people who are deserving of love and respect and those deserving of contempt and violence. And so if you're an ambitious Republican right now, the way to win a primary, the way to win office is to be seen being ritualistically cruel to one of these uh, communities that conservatives are fixated on and have that covered by Fox News who will rave about what a true conservative you are. And that shows your commitment to them in a way, this when you are cruel to people who are outside of the community, who they believe are not deserving of respect, um, that shows your commitment to their community. And, and so in this paradoxical way, they see these, you know, sort of sadistic actions, you know, even if you think liberals are hypocritical on immigration, we're talking about real people who are being exploited for this stunt. Even if you want to call out that hypocrisy in some way, you don't treat human beings this way to do it. And the reason why that's acceptable is because it is seen as sort of a kind of uh, an act of commitment towards the community that he feels like he represents, which does not include, uh, you know, which does not include people who disagree with him on politics. 
Well, I mean, I mean, you know, yelling at, at kids because they have masks on to protect themselves, suing cruise lines how, because they would dare to try to stop COVID from getting on the ships with the passengers. I mean, the things that he does don't have like policy priorities. They definitely, to me, feel more like sort of 1960s era, you know, whipping up a, a, the, a the, 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 you know, a mob at the University of Mississippi because James Meredith was coming and then cheering it on as four people are killed in that mob. Right. I mean, it does feel like he's that kind of retro politician. My question is, what does it say about our country that that's so effective? I mean, I think it says that we have a system uh, that is kind of majoritarian and it rewards a specific coalition that is ideally geographically distributed to exploit, uh, you know, the elector to win the electoral college or to control the Senate. And because of that, it is very important for the party that represents this coalition uh, to make sure that they always feel like they are on the verge of apocalypse, that they're being threatened by these people who are different from them. And when you're in that kind of situation, you're, you, you think you're back to the wall, you think you're, your back is to the wall, you think that, you know, the apocalypse is nigh, then you are willing to do um, crazy things or cruel things because you're thinking, well, I'm doing this to defend myself. This is for my survival. I'm trying to save the country. And that gives you license. That gives you license to be cruel in this particular way. And I think that's why, you know, when you see these Donald Trump or DeSantis giving these sort of outlandish speeches where like the liberals are doing this and the liberals are doing that. And it's some sort of crazy, insane conspiracy. The point is to make these people afraid so that they are willing to justify cruel acts towards people that they see as threatening them, even if all those people want to do is come to this country and try to have a better life. No, I mean, you, 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 you write about this and you talk about this, the fact that, I mean, lynchings were like a, a party, right? You know what I mean? And it was the act of being cruel together. It wasn't just doing the violence, but it was the license to do violence and the license to do violence together. So there is this horrible American tradition of this. And I, I just wonder if there's a way that there's a counter politics that somehow mitigates it. Well, I think, you know, it's not just American politics, it's really human nature. Like it goes back to it's, it's that sort of primal thing when you when you're a, a kid and you tease the the one kid who, who doesn't fit in um, yeah. in order to show that you fit in with everybody else. It's like it's that quality, that human nature quality elevated to the level of politics. Um, yeah, and in absolutely. the past, what has defeated it is a willingness to engage in solidarity with people who are different from you. Yeah. Um, and maybe the American political system was a little different and the Republican Party could not win power with this sort of minority, uh, you know, a mon minoritarian coalition, rather, um, yeah. then they would be forced to reach outside of their base in a yeah. way that would not make it possible, um, you know, to, to sim simply right. demonize. Actors. I mean, when you look at the Democratic Party, yep. it's not simply that liberals are more virtuous. You have to figure out a way uh, to, to, to link hipsters in Brooklyn to church grandmas in South Carolina. And when you have to do right. that, you can't, you have to uh, be willing to work through your differences. It's not just yeah. about demonizing people who are different. Absolutely. Adam, sir, we're always a pleasure, man. Thank you very much. Um, the cruelty is the point. It's on paperback right now. We'll be right back. Eight out of 10 times, if a Latino is being outreached through the church, more than likely they believe in some of the conservative platforms. Um, so it's much easier for them to get out and vote Republican. So if Republicans don't start strategizing with Latino pastors and churches like the Democrats have done for years with a black uh, church, uh, there will be no victory for conservative candidates uh, across the country. 
Latinos are the fastest growing voting bloc in the U.S. and in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, an increasing number are voting Republican. Tomorrow night, a new episode of MSNBC's Field Report with Paula Ramos will dig into what is behind that shift. And joining me now is Paula Ramos, MSNBC contributor and host of Field Report. Uh, excited to watch, uh, Paula. What are we going to learn? You're going to learn what you just heard, that one of the things that Republicans have found out is that if they go into Latino evangelical churches and then mobilize them and they politicize them, you can actually get the result that they saw in the special election, which is for the first time in over 100 years, there's a Republican that is representing Hidalgo County. You know? And that is historic. So you'll understand the new strategy. You'll understand the message that's resonating, which is God, family, country. And more than anything, what we found is that if a Latina immigrant talks to Latinos in this way, she has this incredible capacity to switch them over to the Republican Party in a way, Joy, that I haven't seen in, in the years that I've been in the Rio Grande Valley. How is the abortion issue playing? Because we know polling-wise, Latinas and Latinos are, are pro-abortion majority, even if they're religious. How's that playing all of the restrictions? Completely. That's what the national numbers will tell you, right? But what I found on the ground is that when I had conversations with, on paper, Latino Democrats, and I asked them, are you pro-abortion? Many of them told me no. I would ask them, do you support same-sex marriage? Many of them told me no. And I would ask them, have you ever voted for a Republican? Ever. The majority of them told me no. Why not? Because they don't look like me. So, yes, mm. you're right. The national numbers are telling us something. But in this specific district, it's abortion is one of the reasons why a candidate like Mayra Flores that used to support Barack Obama switched over to the Republican Party. So, as usual, Latinos are not a monolith. It's complicated. I think this is a story that sheds light on that nuance. And are both parties in the community trying to sway voters? Um, what does that look like in South Texas in terms of the parties? That was the biggest question, Joy. Where was the DNC? Right. Someone like Mayra Flores outraced her opponent 10 to 1. The Republicans gave her over a million dollars to spend on TV ads. Her opponent had just over 130,000. So that's sort of the, the elephant in the room. Where yeah. was the DNC? Yeah, because you know what? Outreach matters and representation matters. I think it's true in politics and it is in life and in media. And we love having That's you right. here. Thank you, Paula Ramos. Uh, be sure to watch the latest edition of Field Report with Paula Ramos tomorrow at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. Also streaming on Peacock, uh, a great young reporter, and y'all should support her work. That is tonight's readout. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.